Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus podcast, the first Food Focus for August. Trent Kling alongside Leighton Kling. On today's show, we'll talk a little Del Taco. We'll have a farewell to Tivana as Starbucks shuts that concept down, or at least plans to shut it down. And we'll look into Spirit's momentum with an update from Diageo. But first, we begin with Dunkin' Brands. For our listeners, this, again, consists of Dunkin' Donuts and Baskin-Robbins operations, along with the licensing business they have. They exceeded expectations for earnings in their latest quarter as the company showed modest overall growth. Now, this quarterly earnings report is for the second quarter of fiscal 2017. We'll look through the revenues of each part of the business, but first, Leighton, let's look at the big picture. The big picture sees top-line revenues increasing 1% year-over-year to $218.5 million for the company. This did miss expectations of around $219.5 million, so a very slight miss on that top-line revenue. But we see efficiency was key in double-digit earnings increase for this quarter as the company brought in $0.64 per share, a 12.3% increase year-over-year, a 3.2 beat on analyst expectations. So you can see the company paving the way for those modest increases in the margins that the company has been talking about over the last year. System-wide sales from restaurant divisions increased 4.6%, actually meeting exactly the same growth numbers that they reported last quarter. So sequentially seeing very solid growth in the restaurant division. Now to the primary U.S. divisions, and we're not going to cover the licensing division for this quarter for Dunkin' Donuts as we had done last quarter, but the primary focus will be on the U.S. division and how they are operating their two largest brands. First, we start off with Dunkin' Donuts as they saw U.S. sales increase 2.2% year over year on the back of positive comps and their ever-growing unit count. U.S. revenue hit $157 million, a 0.8% increase in same-store sales and more royalty income they reported, as well as rental income. And if you dive into what those numbers mean, they talked about rental income a lot through their conference call. And this is a little-known fact about Dunkin' Donuts. They actually own much of their real estate and they lease it back to franchisees. So this is another way that they can actually bolster their bottom line by charging out rents, and especially for the long-time franchisees, you see rent increases are, are typical in a commercial lease setup with bumps every 5, 10, 20 years. And they talked a lot about how they're trying to get long-time franchisees to sign on for longer agreements to be part of the corporation and to really buy into the concept. And we'll talk a little bit about that later and what it means for what they're trying to do inside their stores. But Dunkin' Donuts International did see comps decrease 2.8%. So this is very interesting here as this is actually reflective of the exact opposite of what they're doing in their Baskin-Robbins business. Their U.S. revenues there were up 4.4% to $10.6 million. And you can see, Trent, just from what I said there, $157 million in U.S. revenue from Dunkin' Donuts, just 10.6 in Baskin-Robbins. You can see the majority of their U.S. business is comprised of Dunkin' Donuts restaurants. And you see that comps domestically for Baskin-Robbins and internationally were the opposite. We see a decrease in comps in the U.S. by 0.9%, and they're struggling to keep those traffic numbers up on a consistent basis. 
If you go back historically over the last few quarters, it's hit and miss every single quarter. They can't find a groove for those same store sales for that traffic to keep coming in at a steady rate. International comps up 3.3%, which actually did surprise some as they had ticked down 6.6% during last year's second quarter. During the conference call, Trent, there were several key executive promotions and transitions announced. Part of what the company sees is an ever-growing restructuring, and you really see this through not only their marketing efforts, but also the renewal of those lease agreements that I talked about for being part of the franchisee program, but then also the in-store remodels and refreshing that they're doing. They have an important incentive program to allow their franchisees to keep up to date on Duncan's corporate remodeling schedule. And this is part of their long-term renewal agreements for franchisees. We're not only talking about leases here, but of course, franchisee contracts as well. Now, franchisees, in order to sign into these long-term renewal agreements and kind of lock into a price, they have to qualify either for Baskin or for Duncan by keeping up to date on their remodel schedule as a corporation. They're giving out agreements up to 20 years for franchisees, which again, seems like a long time, but it's common throughout the industry. We talked several months ago about A&W signing franchisees up for 20 to 25 years. Looking at the end of the second quarter, nearly 75% of all Dunkin' Donuts restaurants had greater than 10 years remaining on their franchise agreements. This speaks to the fact that they're trying to get franchisees on for the long term, which will give the business stability long term, but it also gives the franchisees security to make those investments that they need to make in terms of remodeling and also ensures that the franchisees are buying into the concept for the long term. One of the things that the company did do during this conference call as we were listening in, they were boasting about the positives associated with being 100% franchised out. And it seems as though that's where they're certainly looking to keep things rather than companies buying back stores from franchisees or having to refranchise. Duncan Brands is seeing a big benefit from being completely franchised out, unlike a business we'll talk about here in a second with Del Taco. For Dunkin' Donuts, they were also reviewing an image refresh that's being targeted for a quarter three 2018 rollout. Nigel Travis on the conference call said, and I quote, we believe this new design will be transformational from a design, equipment, and technology perspective. We want our franchisees to have the capital to build the greatest number of restaurants in the new image over the next few years. So again, it kind of plays into one of the things that they're trying to drive home on the franchisee level is making sure that all of the franchisees are upgrading to the new equipment, feeling like that's going to help out not only with throughput, but also with back-end morale on the employee level. Some franchisees have remodels coming due, but they can wait until the new stores are ready completely by that time the quarter three of 2018 rolls around. This will give them even more access to the additional capital they'll need for improvements. They've talked with some of their leading franchisees, Duncan Brands has, about the best way to implement the new store design. They're always looking for ways to improve future profitability, but you certainly like the fact that they're reaching out to franchisees. It's a reflexive process with franchisees. We don't often see that from QSRs who make unilateral decisions that kind of get forced onto the franchisees. And again, this is one of the benefits 
for them of being 100% franchised out rather than having to balance both corporate reorganization at the store level and franchisee reorganization. Executive management feels like their relationship very strong with franchisees in part because of this process and by proving out unit financials with pilot locations, that's going to lead to stronger bonds with these partnerships later on. They don't have a firm date on when all their franchisees have to switch over to this new format store, but they do want to make available all the necessary information for a smooth transition for operators. Their main goal going forward is growing system-wide sales in the U.S. for Dunkin' Donuts. Leighton referenced how Baskin-Robbins has been back and forth on the sales end in the U.S., but again, Dunkin' Brands, where they see strength here domestically is with Dunkin' Donuts. That's also where you see the most unit growth, and they're growing same-store sales quarter after quarter. They want to finish 2017 as the highest franchise in unit growth and total system sales growth as well in the U.S., and it appears as though at least through their first couple of quarters of 2017, they're well on their way. We discuss unit growth. They've grown by a respectable number for Dunkin' Donuts in the United States, and they opened more locations in this latest quarter. Just two to three years ago, if you think back and listen to the management's theme about growing the unit count, you can really see that they have followed through with those plans. And just in this last quarter, they opened 64 U.S. locations and remodeled 114, now nearing 9,000 locations in total, which Nigel Travis, again, their CEO, seems excited about. 330 to 350 new total restaurants in the United States this year. That includes Baskin-Robbins locations which is actually down from the previously guided 385. But still, if you look at any franchise model and you're looking at 300 to 400 new locations per year, you're seeing that as a fairly substantial model and one that franchisees are certainly buying into. Baskin-Robbins opened 12 in the U.S. and 58 internationally and remodeled 19 stores inside the United States. Shares were down for the company about 2% last week after their earnings release to around $53 a share. Shares have stayed at that price level since one year lows for the company around $44 a share and one year highs over $59 a share. Well, we switch gears to Trent's favorite topic in Del Taco as their second quarter results outperform and it shows why they're primed for growth for the rest of 2017. Top line revenue beat expectations coming in at a whopping $108.6 million, 8.6% growth in revenue year over year for the second quarter and we see net income meeting expectations but still up substantially 5.3 million dollars versus 4.9 last year earnings per share came in at 13 cents meeting those expectations at 13 cents system-wide comparable restaurant sales growth or as we call them same restaurant sales or same store sales came in for the company between company-owned and franchise-owned restaurants at 7.1%, company-operated comparable restaurant sales growth of 6.9%, marking the 15th and 20th consecutive quarters of gains there. And you see that 14 of the last 17 saw positive traffic growth and 10.4% system-wide sales growth on a two-year stack. So the company is operating on all cylinders. And you have to understand here with Del Taco that the executive management team is fairly newer. At least their CEO is John Capasola. And he said the results have been made possible by dramatically improving guest experiences at their restaurants, significantly enhancing consumer perceptions of Del Taco, and then successfully repositioning the brand for future growth. And with that, we'll talk about some of the changes, additions, and other details of what they're trying to do as far as initiatives in their stores. But Trent, 
this is a really good franchise that we've talked about for some time having those quality initiatives really trying to get their name out there as just not another qsr but a qsr plus operator one that really tries to differentiate via quality of ingredients and customer service and it looks like they're doing just that and it's reflective in these numbers here any presentation that Del Taco's had for the last three to four years, if you've been on any conference call with them, that QSR Plus moniker is one that comes up time and again. And part of it is starting with those quality ingredients, not unlike a fast casual restaurant, but they've talked about also transparency with ingredients, showing people that they do things like make beans from scratch and use fresh fruits and vegetables as desired throughout their locations. And Capasola, although he is a new CEO, he's not new to the organization as he did a lot of work under the previous leadership group. He's been working a lot, not only with marketing, but making sure their branding objectives have been in place. So Capasola is not new to the business. And I think the rewards that they are reaping right now is a result of years and years of work and positioning themselves in the marketplace as one of those QSR Plus type restaurants. Their strategic initiatives going forward to try and build on the same store sales even further include using more marketing to get the message of some of their new and restructured projects known out there. And some of these projects include Queso which is something that you might have heard on the last few weeks podcast regarding Chipotle, but they're rolling out a queso that they're calling queso blanco or a white queso. Unlike with the recent news from Chipotle that they'll be rolling out queso specifically to 350 or so restaurants throughout the U.S. around September, they don't have an official timeline at Del Taco for this rollout, but it is something that they are working on and feel like they can roll out soon. The queso will have those initiatives with the QSR Plus aspect built in with ingredients. It won't have artificial preservatives, flavors, or colors, so they're trying to tackle basically the same thing that Chipotle was trying to tackle in the past, is trying to make sure that they don't have any artificial ingredients thrown in to keep the queso liquid when on the line. John Capasola reiterated the fact that he feels like queso is an important ingredient for them to be able to offer to customers and the fact that it might be positioned for them to drive both an increase in traffic once they roll out queso, maybe customers will find them more appealing, something we mentioned with Chipotle, but also driving check prices. It's a tantalizing upsell is queso, especially if you've already got the chips and some of the other products there around. Also, things like adding queso to even some of the dollar menu items might provide a valuable upsell for Del Taco as a QSR+. Plus. We've talked about their barbell menu in the past, but this might be a way to kind of move people that are operating on the lower side of the menu or the smaller ticket side of the menu, increase those ticket prices for those customers. Capasola referenced their innovation in the past using, for example, fresh sliced avocados, and he referenced also their rollout of carne asada steak in the past, and how well those things have been received, and he feels as though queso can keep their menu fresh, where with Chipotle, you hear a lot of analysts talking about how their menu's gone stale. That hasn't been a worry with Del Taco, as their rollouts have been rife with innovation over the last several quarters. CFO Steve Brake, when he got on the conference call, he said queso could be used across multiple platforms, kind of what we were just saying in terms of addition to different items along the scale of their barbell menu. 
and he mentioned that it could feed their new product development pipeline for years to come. What he means by this is kind of a similar thing as what you see at a Taco Bell. When they release a new ingredient, you can use that new ingredient in a lot of different menu items and a number of different innovations. So breaking that seal on the queso, introducing that to restaurants, that's going to fuel their innovation even further as queso can be an important or even crucial ingredient in some of their initiatives to try and keep that traffic coming in and keep people interested in their limited time offers. Brake mentioned that they think about it beyond just the nacho type of thing, but he mentioned they are very excited as an organization about the innovation opportunities. Innovation is something that Del Taco has to continue to do to appease shareholders given all of these very positive results they've seen over the last two years. If you look at some of their larger goals that really would affect shareholders, you see their commitments to drive $1.5 million in average unit volumes in 2018 or by 2018. And they're also rolling out a new point of sale system. So overall, you see that all the things they've been talking about with customer service, adding new ingredients to their menu, it is all happening. And I'm sure that shareholders are very excited to see the system-wide comparable sales growth of 7.1% that we mentioned, but also the fact that the restaurant contribution margin of 20.3% and adjusted earnings are going to be very solid for the rest of the year. In fact, they increased their full-year guidance in a number of key metrics for the company management, increased nearly every aspect of forward guidance, one being those system-wide comparable restaurant sales, approximately 35 to 4.5% previously between 2 and 4%. Total revenue for this year coming in between $470 million and 476 previously guided between $466 million and $476 million, also increasing company-operated restaurant sales, that contribution margin, and then reaffirming 23 to 26 new openings, and they said that they actually had opened between the time of the quarter ending and now around two restaurants that were franchised out. So a lot happening for the franchise. And you see the current unit count is around 555 stores as of June 20th. Their shares popped over 4.5% on Friday and have held around $13.10 a share with a price to earnings ratio of modest 22 considering the growth prospects for the company carrying a market cap of around $504 million. To the retailers out there, have you ever wanted to decrease your shopping cart abandonment rate or even increase your potential shopper audience? Well, traditional big box retailers like Macy's, Home Depot, and Crate and Barrel accomplish this by offering shoppers purchase financing options. But let's face it, big box merchants spend millions of dollars a year to offer and manage these purchase financing solutions to their shoppers. That's not practical for most small or growing businesses. Well, now you can offer your shoppers the same purchase financing as the big guys without all the hassle, headache, or compliance. Gain Loans provides merchants of all sizes across many different industries the same big box financing tools without the cost or complexity. Simply download or install the Gain Loans widget on your website or post a sign in your physical store and you and your customers will start benefiting from the increased purchasing power today. Just email TED, T-E-D, at gainloans.com. That's G-A-N-E loans.com to find out about the possibility of integrating gain loans into your retail business, again, at no cost, no obligation to you. 
We transition to Starbucks as they reported earnings last week, but our focus will be on the announcement of the decision to close all their Tivana stores, as well as lowering future sales guidance and a little bit about that Chinese 50% buyout there for the East China division. But what is being called a bad long-term omen for the global coffee chain, the Tivana banner will be closing in order for the company to focus on its other growth areas. The call was overall mostly positive, however, with comps up 5% in the U.S. entirely by ticket size, enrollment in Starbucks rewards was up, and mobile order and pay gaining momentum. But we'll recall that they've raised prices twice in the regular Starbucks stores since last year's third quarter, thus contributing to that average ticket size. We'll dive into that Tivana concept and the news that hit headlines here. Starbucks had 379 Tivana retail stores, a far cry from the massive number that Starbucks has in the United States. Many of these stores were acquired back in 2012, when they had 337 units and all the acquisition was a $620 million deal. And a lot of people, a lot of analysts at the time were wondering exactly what is Starbucks going to do with Tivana? Are they going to have a brand extension? Are they going to start carrying more teas inside of their stores? Well, they did some of those things, but it turns out that the Tivana stores weren't as sustainable as maybe management had hoped. These retail stores sell both loose leaf and prepackaged teas as well as ready-to-drink teas for their customers. Tivana is, in the words of Starbucks, principally mall-based. And so many of these locations you would see inside indoor malls where Starbucks already has a storefront. There are some malls, in fact, where Starbucks has two to three locations inside those larger malls. From their release, you see a quote saying, Despite efforts to reverse trend through creative merchandising and new store designs, the underperformance was likely to continue. Interestingly, though, they put the timeline of the Tivana accomplishments with their earnings release. So with all the closing of the remaining Tivana stores, most shuttered by 2018 in the spring, this is a very long time to explore other options for them as far as to change maybe some of the Tivana concepts back into Starbucks locations. And they've already done this to an extent with the integration of Tivana products in Starbucks locations in 2016. We can also assume from the commercial real estate perspective that they'll be a little bit creative in navigating these lease exits. Although they gave that timeline of spring 2018, it behooves the company to exit the lease agreements as it becomes financially possible or a little bit more financially incentivized. And if you look at the typical mall contracts for spaces in the food court, you see that mall leases for restaurants or anyone inhabiting the food court were actually once at a premium. So this is quite interesting because you could see this as a potential detriment to the company as they exit some long-term leases a little bit prematurely. They have to pay those increasing rates. But now agreements are a little bit more flexible if you look inside the mall industry with nearly 50% of food court leases between the two and five year range. So it turns out they may be able to get out of the majority of these over 300 leases in proper fashion. And you see that costs per square foot have actually come down in recent years, meaning that they could be paying a less premium if they were to exit a lease agreement prematurely. But indoor malls that have food courts are somewhat reliant on having full tenancy, as a study by Sharma found that customers spend 20% more on average with good food courts. People want to feel comfortable as they shop around and that enables them to stick around and spend more money. So it's from an economic perspective, a little bit more logical that these big mall operators want a store like Tivana to stick around. So I am curious to see what they do from the real estate 
and if Starbucks takes any more asset impairment charges related to their lease agreements. A lot of media outlets were reporting that they were going to close these concepts straight up by spring 2018, but that's actually not what the release says. They plan to close most of those concepts by spring of 2018, and I think that speaks to what Leighton was discussing. If a lease agreement is very prohibitive to get out of, Starbucks might actually do better financially by just keeping that store open for a little while longer before closing out. One of the things I found kind of interesting is that Starbucks put out an infographic with this earnings release and the mention of closing the Tivana stores called Growth and Commitment to Tea when they announced these closures. And in this infographic, they mentioned the existing $1.6 billion in overall revenue to this point from the sale of Tivana beverages in Starbucks locations, suggesting that Perhaps some of these Tivana freestanding stores aren't needed. Full integration for Tivana into Starbucks locations was achieved globally last year in 2016. But as with any series of closures, we also turn our attention to the employees of Tivana. There are reportedly 3,300 employees across the 379 stores, which is less than 10 per store if you do the math seems pretty low for a concept like that since at most times they have three employees working in a Tivana location so you figure a lot of those employees are full-time employees. These workers will basically be offered the ability to apply at Starbucks now according to the initial press release and the earnings call. Unlike with most retailers, it doesn't appear as though they're going to be offered straight up the ability to transfer, at least according to that conference call, just the ability to apply. However, when you look at one of the infographics that Starbucks put out regarding this issue, they say that they have teams working to find these former Tivana employees or soon-to-be former Tivana employees opportunities in Starbucks stores. So that's a little bit inconsistent from what it said in the earnings release. We'll wait and see exactly what method they're going to use in order to kind of deal with these employees that may be out of work. So going a little bit deeper, it behooves us to determine why Starbucks is closing these stores, why Tivana hasn't succeeded as a freestanding brand. Well, mall traffic is something that analysts blame. We saw a lot of clickbait headlines that said that the death of malls showed up in this earnings release and the fact that malls are dying meant Tivana stores were closing. But we believe that it has as much to do with their business model and margins. I went to a Simon-operated mall recently, and on the advisement of one of my colleagues, sat and watched Dynamics at the Tivana store in that location. This colleague of mine was concerned that the store was losing money on their sampling program. And for those that haven't been to a Tivana or might be a little bit more unfamiliar, a lot of them have sampling pitchers out for potential customers towards the front of the store. This location had nine sampling pitchers at all, eight that appeared to be oh, about two liter containers with tea and then whatever sweetener was appropriate to that tea, maybe agave syrup or cane sugar. And then one that was maybe a two and a half gallon dispenser at the very front of the store. The time I was there, which was about 30 minutes, about 60% of those who sampled teas didn't purchase anything in the store. And what's more, a lot of the sampling customers took multiple samples. They had to refill the carafes that they were using to sample out in that 30 minutes multiple times. And their two and a half gallon dispenser actually ran out in the time that I was watching and they had to go and refill that. So when you put all of these things together, 
you wonder how much their sampling program was actually helping sales. And honestly, you could get away with all that sampling if margins were fairly large on tea to begin with, meaning that they were out very little on the actual raw materials. But recent data is suggesting that that may not be the case as tea's commodity price has risen from $2.38 per kilogram in April 2016 to $3.82 per kilogram in June of 2017. That's reflective of a 60.5% increase in commodities prices over one year and two months. That is a remarkable increase and could be one of the reasons why Tivana was struggling in terms of their bottom line. Some specialty teas have been hit particularly hard, and of course specialty teas, what Tivana specializes in. Rising labor expense and unpredictable weather also have been driving prices higher for tea, according to economists. This is for black tea prices, we should mention. However, research suggests that the increases hold for green and white teas as well. So on a year-over-year basis, the average cost of a kilogram of tea last April was $2.57, this April $3.12, so still a pretty significant increase looking across all types of tea. We should also mention at this point that we're aware many Tivana teas either don't have tea in them or tea is only one ingredient of many. They use dried hibiscus and fruit in multiple different teas. But in that same time, if we turn our attention to Starbucks and their operations, commodity pricing for Coffee Robusta, which is the type that Starbucks uses, went from $0.87 cents per kilo to $1.05 per kilo, which is only a 19.9% increase. So coffee prices increasing at a much lower rate than RT prices. And this could be one of the reasons why Starbucks was possibly seeing this concept as one that wasn't going to work for the long term. It's really tough to tell if Starbucks had a gain from buying the Tivana back a few years ago. This $620 million acquisition is really not paying off. However, Starbucks will argue that the $1.6 billion that they reported from Tivana products sold in Starbucks stores actually made the acquisition worthwhile long term. And you see that they're going to continue selling these types of products going forward. But did Tivana's name recognition justify the acquisition? We ask this because Starbucks had more powerful name recognition overall, and that could have most certainly played a big part into maybe having their own similar line of teas through their own R&D channels. Starbucks spent quite a bit on marketing Tivana. If they had spent that money instead on their own line, they may have been better off financially. Obviously, these things are hindsight, but these are very good questions to have, especially considering operationally going forward what they're going to do with any sort of acquisitions. Plus, you have to take into consideration some of this money came from the sales that would have taken place anyway. Green tea lattes, London fog lattes, for example. Aside from whether the brand was worth it, we can assume that these stores were hemorrhaging money. You could see that through recent data, through their last couple of quarters, that they were writing down a lot that was linked to Starbucks's all other segments. And I quote that. All other segments includes areas such as Tivana, but also the Starbucks reserve stores, which they only have a handful of those currently. But overall, you see that this is going to effectively dissolve this whole category of all other segments. Starbucks is looking to focus on the more profitable areas of their business. Just this last quarter, Starbucks had a $102 million asset impairment write down on Tivana. That doesn't necessarily mean they were losing that money per quarter, but Overall, that particular write-down had a 0.6% negative impact on their operating margin for that entire quarter. If you portion it out, 
they totaled a $10 million loss in the third quarter after discounting some of the write down, which was around $15 million in the same period last year. So you're seeing that this company was hemorrhaging, Trent, and I think this was likely due to those margins that you spoke of. Overall, it's probably a smart decision for Starbucks to have closed these locations or in the process of closing these locations. But as far as we can tell, given the financials we've got, if you go a little bit further, Tivana stores were making well under $500,000 per unit. And you see that on an average unit volume, that's fairly low for Starbucks. If the Starbucks reserve and roastery locations were successful, these numbers would look even worse for Tivana given the previous quarter's data. Even if Tivana locations were profitable, in theory, the company is always best suited to put their money where they think they can get the best rate of return. And it appears as though that the rest of their operations, especially with the recent East China growth where they just bought the remaining 50% stake in its already existing business, really make it seem as though they're putting assets and capital where the higher growth really is amounting to. And you see that deal recently announced was for $1.3 billion. Again, China, one of those things that we've talked about here as far as a dominating growth area for the company during their investor relations day that we had talked about at length, China was almost about 30% of that discussion. So very quickly, we take a look at how this impacted Starbucks shares. Shares did plummet over 8% on Friday after the earnings call and after the details of some of their larger business strategy, which is odd because as Layton mentioned, buying out those China stores could actually provide a large financial boost long term for Starbucks. And it was apparent that Tivana was not making money in the beginning. Usually when these announcements take place, you would expect shares to pop. However, they did not. And in fact, they declined below $54 a share on Monday in trading on that day. Price to earnings ratio is still very robust at 27, still indicative of a growth company representing a massive market cap of 78 billion, one of the largest in the QSR industry. In our last story, we're going to take a look at spirits distributor Diageo as they released their full year results. Once again, as with Starbucks, we're not going to take a look at the numbers for the earnings call predominantly because these numbers are a little bit difficult to parse out what is domestic and what is international in sales. But Diageo does a great job annually of breaking out overall business trends in spirits by category. And that's what we're going to talk about here on the podcast, Spirits, Trends, and Momentum that Diageo is seeing. This is for their fiscal year ending June 30th. This was released on July 27th. A little bit about Diageo. Their name, actually, if you're wondering where it comes from, it's not someone's last name, and it's not really anything that was legacy. The name comes from a mashup of Latin and Greek, meaning approximately day world, and this ties into their motto of celebrating life every day, everywhere, and I quote that, that five-word motto for Diageo. They have a vast portfolio in the spirits category. A lot of these are no doubt familiar with our listeners Johnny Walker and J&B are predominant brands of scotch as well as Buchanan's. Crown Royal is a Canadian or blended whiskey. Smirnoff is a fairly ubiquitous vodka. Kettle One is a premium vodka. And Ciroc is an ultra-premium vodka primarily made with grapes. Captain Morgan is, of course, a dominant force in the rum industry right there next to Bacardi. Bailey's Irish Cream is also a holding as well as Don Julio Tequila, Tanqueray Gin, 
and Guinness as a beer. Basically, the only thing missing from their major holdings is a brandy or cognac brand. That's more of a niche spirit anyway, although we are seeing increases in cognac sales year over year for the last couple of years. They are, Diageo is the very definition of an international company, offices in 80 different nations and products in 180 countries. Many of those products I just discussed are actually manufactured in various countries or regions. 25% of their yearly sales worldwide are from scotch, 16 are from beer, which is predominantly Guinness, and 12% of their yearly sales are from vodka. Now, this changes in North America, where scotch only makes up 9% of sales. Whiskey and vodka combined make up around half of their sales in North America, predominantly with Crown Royal, which we'll talk about in a second. Overall, North America does make up over a third of Diageo's sales. So North America is the predominant area of strength for this spirits company. And finally, as we get into some of these trends, they do have a three-priority decision-making process as a company. And this they talked about a lot during their annual report, creating a positive role for alcohol in society, building thriving communities, and reducing their environmental impacts. And you see one of the ways in which they create that positive role or attempt to they're big on promoting responsible drinking and it's responsible for a lot of their marketing expenditure they link to things about responsible drinking and nearly every press release and in fact some of their sponsorships of major sporting events they'll actually take that sponsorship and simply use it only to underscore responsible drinking but enough about the company Leighton let's get to some of the yearly trends where we're looking at both volume and net sales here if you talk about those yearly trends, you can back up and look at the big macro for a second and see that the United States spirits market for Diageo was up 3%, and in Canada, sales grew by 3% as well. And this is interesting because discussing this company is sort of a throwback to my undergraduate and graduate level courses in economics, talking about price elasticity of demand, something that this company works with day in and day out. And through nearly every one of their financial press releases, they're talking about the current trends in the market and what the marketing campaigns in certain areas are doing for particular areas of sales. And so I think these yearly trends are borne out in both volume and net sales for the company. And it's extremely important to look at that dynamic where volume is the amount sold and sales, they're looking at strictly those sales dollars. When volume is up more than sales, this indicates promotional pricing effects. When sales are up more than volume, prices have increased, obviously. What is most interesting is that for the most part, sales and volume increases are indicative of customers turning towards more premium price points for the company. Nearly two-thirds of their U.S. sales were in premium, super premium, and ultra premium segments. The lone exception to this was the grape-based vodka brand Ciroc, whose volume was down 10% and sales down 12%. Organic net sales growth was negative 15.4% in the U.S. alone. As an important side note that has to do with marketing, this may have more to do with the waning importance or popularity of Sean Diddy Combs, who has long been the brand's U.S. ambassador. Aside from Ciroc, multiple brands have seen an explosion in demand. Don Julio, the premium-priced tequila, up 25% in volume and 25% in net sales. Part of this because fiscal year 2016 was an awful year for tequila, so easier comps. And we'll talk a little bit about tequila a little bit later and how the company may actually be looking to tequila as a bullish piece of the market inside the United States. Crown Royal, which is classified as a local star by Diageo because of its North American performance, 
up 10% in volume, 12% in sales, which actually looking at the price elasticity of demand, meaning that that demand is actually higher than supply, at least in the short term. So they can actually squeeze out those pricing increases and get the margin from Crown Royal. But Bullet Bourbon, which is an emerging presence in the premium bourbon market, up 23% in volume and 24% in net sales. And Buchanan Scotch up 16% in both metrics. Among their mainstay brands, it is those with the higher price points and perceived quality whose sales are surging. Johnny Walker up 4% in volume, 6% across all variants. And you see that's probably a relation to their marketing efforts with Johnny Walker in particular. Tangeray up 12% in volume, 9% in sales. Indicative, again, of falling prices there. Although less premium in price point, Captain Morgan volume is up 7%. Bailey's also up 6%. And you see where they are struggling. Spiritoff actually took it on the chin in a very bullish spirits market overall, as I mentioned. For Diageo, they lost 1% in both volume and sales. Organic sales growth, sales for existing brands and extensions, in other words, down 2.5% in the United States. This has hampered Diageo's domestic growth as despite booms in other brands, organic North American sales growth was at 3.4%. Between this, Kettle One's stagnation and Ciroc's poor showing, vodka was in the negative territory in North America, negative 4% overall. Without the impact of vodka in the United States, net sales were up 6.1%. Guinness lost 1% in worldwide volume, likely as customers reach for stouts produced locally. We talk about the local effect of the beer market overall. And you see in the United States, many stouts are not only better in terms of ratings on flavor, but also much cheaper. Oatmeal, chocolate, and coffee stouts are helping to sap Guinness's market share. They expressed disappointment in their beer holdings as they were flat in the United States. So now let's look at why they're having success in the areas they are having success. Well, potentially could come down to marketing. Diageo's North American marketing spend went up 4% overall, and it was greater as a percentage of overall sales versus the prior year. And it's not just the advertising spend here, but how they're doing it. Their keep walking tagline for Johnny Walker was credited for 29% growth in the aspiration portion of their brand equity score and an 11% increase in the quality portion. Basically, this is saying that because of the use of their keep walking tagline, people perceive Johnny Walker as a higher quality brand and they aspire to purchase the brand or aspire to acquire the brand more than they did before they made this tagline popular. And how they're doing this is by using keep walking with city or neighborhood specific signage. So you see signs, for example, in New York that might say keep walking Queens or signs in Boston saying keep walking Boston. They want to continue marketing trends in the U.S. and they want to continue to increase their U.S. spend in the next fiscal year, in part to stabilize the U.S. vodka market. So don't be surprised if you begin to see more advertisements for things like Smirnoff Vodka or Ciroc or if they kind of pivot how they are marketing one of those brands. Another aspect and why they're having success in premium brands could also be the economy. We've talked about slight wage inflation and falling unemployment across the board. So it stands that there is potentially a little bit more discretionary income. Millennials that came of drinking age during the recession may theoretically be able now to afford brands with higher perceived quality. This stands to hurt some of their holdings. We saw Smirnoff's organic sales were down 2.5% in the U.S. as the customers move on to premium and ultra-premium brands. 
And when you look at other categories in alcoholic beverages, this is basically what happened with beer. But because beer comes at a lower overall price point, the movement there towards better beer or perceived better beer, craft beer, was much earlier in happening. You're talking about a difference of maybe 2 or $3 between a six-pack of a macro beer and a micro-brewed beer. That's not the same in terms of spirits as you're looking at a 20 to $30 increase between maybe the lower-end brand and one of those premium or ultra-premium brands. The same effect in the alcohol industry has actually been cited for wine, where customers start out with sweeter and more accessible wines based on price point and eventually end up with dry reds that cost a little bit more. Not always the case, but it has been an observable trait in the U.S. wine industry, particularly in periods of boom or bust in terms of income and discretionary income. We've also spotted out some things to watch in the next year for Diageo. Overall, U.S. alcohol consumption decreased in 2016, meaning that competition for Diageo and other brands to grab an increasingly shrinking market share may become more fierce. However, at the same time, distilled spirits, which is largely where Diageo competes, the consumption of that in the U.S. was up 2.4% in 2016 over 2015. American whiskey sales also increased last year as well, with volumes up 6.8%. The question then going forward is if Diageo can leverage Bullet into a truly ubiquitous brand. It's certainly beginning to get there, and that's part of the reason for that is their marketing spend, particularly in radio and print. And although they saw increases in Tanqueray volume and sales during this last year, they saw a much higher volume increase than sales increase for Tanqueray. This is opposite of the trend of the rest of the gin industry. In fact, the International Wines and Spirits record released a report looking at volumes dropping for the rest of the gin industry while sales were rising. So out of this, you get a couple of questions here. Are customers increasingly opting for super or ultra premium options in gin? The study that I cited regarding price increases while volumes drop noted a market crowding effect introduced by the boom of craft gin brands, and so that could potentially cut into Tanqueray's market share long term. And another potential question, has Tanqueray cut prices to the point where their quality perception has suffered? We should keep an eye on Tanqueray and the dynamics of the gin industry going forward to see if these questions are answered. But Leighton, you mentioned tequila and Diageo seeing tequila as a major driver for growth in the U.S. and a celebrity tied in with this big in the news last month. I'm actually a fan of the celebrity who was part of this acquisition from Diageo. George Clooney founded the Tequila Casamigos, and you see that the company is bullish on the U.S. prospects, or at least what they're saying now from the press release in June when they said they acquired the company and their eye and growth in the United States, but also internationally as they hope to leverage their distribution for the tequila brand. Casamigos has delivered impressive growth, Diageo says in their news release reaching 120,000 cases in 2016, primarily in the United States. The company says the tequila brand is expected to top 170,000 cases by the end of this year. And if you go back to that June 21st announcement, you see that they agreed to pay $700 million for Casamigos with an extra $300 million in compensation based on the performance of the brand over the next decade. So this is actually structured in such a way that it gives the old owners, George Clooney and his business partners, some stake in the game throughout the success of the brand overall and to see if they can actually distribute it 
in a successful way so that it gains brand recognition and becomes one of the elite tequilas inside of the United States and internationally. But the acquisition will cost the company in terms of cash in the short run. It is curious to see if their longer term goal of bringing the brand to more markets abroad works. But overall, you see that it has gained momentum that was created just in 2013. So it's hit store shelves for no longer than four years. I am curious to see if they're going to be bullish on this brand like they are in supporting their other larger brands. We've reached the conclusion or near the conclusion of the Food Focus podcast for this week, which means it's time for our segment, What We Ate. Each Leighton and I talk about one item that's new to the world of food or at least new to us in the world of food. And we begin with Leighton. Well, what I tried had to do with the coupon I received, and that coupon was for Carrabba's Italian Grill, and I was really excited about going to Carrabba's as this was the second time in the last three months I had visited my local location, and that $15 coupon really made me contained to that $15 price point, and it was exciting to look at the menu and see that actually I could buy some entrees within that $15 maximum price, but The wood-grilled tilapia came in at $14.95, or at least at my location it did. One of the factors that really made me decide to get that was also the fact that it had zero grams of trans fat. If you look at some of the toppings on other things, such as their chicken brine, it has trans fat because of the additional things they put on for that flavor. This actually did not have that. So the wood-grilled tilapia was exceptionally delicious despite not having all of those other flavorful toppings. And it still had the protein and the calories that I was wanting from a normal size entree with around 310 calories, 45 grams of protein, and the total fat was only around 13 grams. So overall, a very delicious entree. And as for the side, I just got plain broccoli with no butter. It was steamed. But overall, a very delicious meal. And I'm excited that I got the coupon because ordinarily, I have to be honest, because of my budgetary guidelines, I really have confined myself to not eating out as much. So this is one of the first times in a little while, in about a month or so, that I've been able to eat at such a fancy restaurant and not feel guilty when the check comes. Well, I'm a big fan of the bread brand Dave's Killer Bread, and I was really excited when I saw that they were rolling out actually new breakfast-style bread with raisins in it, and I got their bread Raisin the Roof. Now, the price point is a little bit more on Dave's Killer Bread than most, and Raisin the Roof at my particular outlet was $5.50, but it was worth it. One of the things I like about Dave's Killer Bread overall is the texture. There's always a lot of seeds and grains in the bread, and this was certainly the case. But in the case of Raisin the Roof, if you get most raisin bread or raisin-style bread, it's going to be far too sweet. I don't like things that are super sweet, and in this case, it hit just the perfect amount of sweetness. Now, it's not as healthy as, say, some of their other offerings that they have, but it did have eight grams of whole grain and no high fructose corn syrup. And for that reason, yeah, I would recommend it. Obviously at a little bit of a premium price point for bread, but certainly worth the while for something that is store-bought. That'll do it for us here on the Food Focus podcast. For Layton, I'm Trent. Coming up this week, we've got an interview with Dave Munson, who is the founder and CEO of Saddleback Leathers. We kick off our e-commerce interview series for shop.org coming up in September. So be sure and tune in for that. Subscribe to us if you haven't already on iTunes or any other podcast delivery service. And be sure and rate us if you get the opportunity and you like our podcast. Until next week, so long. 
been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.